We're turning back to Ephesians chapter 5. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 5. Christmas um, is definitely uh, the most popular uh, time of the year here in America. Um, there's a lot of hubbub, a lot of things going on. But, but I mean, what, what's happened to, to Christmas, right? I mean, it, it got hijacked. Um, now in the schools, you know, I was talking to my brother, and they're getting ready to, to break from school to do what? To celebrate winter holiday, right? It's not Christmas vacation when I was a kid. Um, and then what do you do on winter holiday? Well, it's all about, you know, going on vacation, you know, going skiing, you know, doing fun stuff, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's a, a distraction from Christmas. Um, we see, you know, that, you know, Santa Claus and the elves and the snowmen and the reindeer and the Grinch and, you know, all that fun cutesy stuff is, you know, kind of takes, takes away a little bit from uh, what Christmas really is. And then you even have, you know, the, uh, the, the, the rom-coms, right? Uh, here come the rom-coms and there's, you know, there's like 500 just on the Hallmark Channel. Like 500 Christmas romance movies, stories, movies. Uh, this year alone they created, you know, for those of you who are fans, um, you know, they think they created 49 more. Um, so Christmas is really, it's, it's a romance. It's a romantic time. Um, it's not exactly what Christmas is supposed to be like, but it, like I said, it's been, it's been hijacked and not by a fight, not by a, not by a, a, a rejection in Christianity or rejection in the birth of Christ. No, it was, it was more subtle, right? It's kind of like the, you know, uh, the, the tactic of uh, evasion, right? You, you have, you, you know, you have this, this plant that's overgrowing or an animal or a bug or something that's, you know, overruling. It's like, well, we could bring in pesticides and kill, or we could just bring in something else that'll then override it in time. Something else might eat it. Something else might grow around it and choke it out. So there's no real fight. There's no real battle. It's just a, a, a slow, subtle, over time, you, you just replace it. Uh, so there doesn't have to be a, a rejection. There was never a rejection of Christmas just a, a replacement with all these different distractions. Um, and so we've lost the point. We've lost the, 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 the nuance, the miracle, the, the miracle and the mystery of Christmas. Uh, the mystery of Christmas that in the triune Godhead, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which is what composes God, that, that part of the triune Godhead Jesus comes on earth incarnate in flesh? What? That, that's a miracle. That's mysterious. We can say it, but understanding it is, it's again, it's, it's a miraculous thing to even behold that God is with us. You know, why did it have to be a virgin birth? Well, because because this baby was begotten. Um, that's part of the miracle. 
We see in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his begotten son. So, so this baby wasn't just a baby that was just a special baby. No, this is from the Godhead. It's mysterious. It's miraculous. And then there was a point. There was a point to this birth. We see this in 1 John. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The great song I remember walking around the house and you know, hearing in our, in our home that, that song being sung. This is how we know. This is how we know. You know, what love is. Jesus Christ laying down his life for us. Sacrificing his life for us. The creator sacrifices for the created. That's hard to fathom. It's, it's a beautiful, wonderful, um, mysterious thing. Christmas then, again, is, is what happens and is the setup for Easter, right? They're connected. There, there's, there's no Easter without Christmas. The sacrifice that's made on the cross is made by, by flesh, by life. It, it wasn't like just, you know, like the, the Greek or Roman God that just decided, okay, it's vacation time. Let's go down to earth for a couple months. And, you know, one of my events is going to be, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. Even though I don't feel the pain or anything like that, it'll be a good show. That, that's not what Jesus did. Um, he was born. He was a baby, a baby. Can you imagine putting yourself in the hands of humanity as, as a baby? Think about that for a second. Um, we have a new baby in our family and, you know, and, and when I see the little baby and, you know, she, she can't do anything for herself. I mean, to the point where like you, you have to carry her everywhere, right? It's kind of a funny thing. You think, boy, they have no idea how good they have it. <laughs> Would love to be carried. Someday, maybe my boys can carry me around. We'll see. <laughs> but, um, but, but through this evasion, through this, all these different things, and look, don't get me wrong. There's, there's an element and a piece of, you know, as a Christian, Christmas has such a, a powerful spiritual meaning and as an american we do silly things like the grinch and you know charlie brown and stuff like that um but have we forgotten have we removed and i say we now not as americans but we as christians have we removed or replaced christianity with a lot of, or christmas with other things one of the things that christmas reveals to us is this this journey this journey of jesus this journey of jesus through this concept of subjection um, and and this is what's really struck me and um, what was really captivated me and so over the next three weeks we're going to look at the the christmas journey and, and how it's revealed subjection in three ways first the object of subjection which is jesus himself there was a plan of subjection. It wasn't an, an accident. There was a great plan. And then finally with Christmas, the fulfillment of subjection. 
But today we're going to look at Jesus being um, the object of subjection. He is the object of subjection. And we're going to look at it in two ways. We're going to see how it's revealed, one, in the book of Ephesians. And then secondly, we're going to look and see how it's revealed in the book of Philippians. Just two minor areas. Now, keep in mind, when you think of Christmas, when you think of Easter, they're, they're connected. When you think of communion, they're connected. Really, all of Scripture then is connected in this Christmas way, if you think about it that way. It's always connected in a Christmas, Easter, communion way. Now, that's very interesting because we can get all caught up in, in a lot of the different theologies and a lot of different um, books and the history and whatnot. But it's like, you know, the gospel is simple. It, it's still very simple that there was a plan to save the world from their sin. We couldn't do it. There wasn't enough bulls and goats. There wasn't enough blood. And so God had a plan to save us from our sin by coming on the earth and dying himself. Whoa, that's Christmas. Well, that's also the totality of scripture, right? And so when we look at scripture, we see all over the place, in essence, elements of Christmas, elements of, of Christ, And so one of the things that we see is that we see that, that like any great coach or any great leader, Jesus leads by example, right? In fact, that's the statement. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, says Jesus. He leads by example. He's not asking us to do anything that he ha he hasn't done. Now think about that for a second. Our God, our master, our king asks of us to do a lot of things, right? We've been going over that. We've been looking at like the lists of immorality. We've been looking at, at the fruits of the spirit. And it's like, you know, it's not always that easy to, you know, be kind, to live with joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithful, self-control, right? It's not always easy to fulfill the fruits of the Spirit. It's a lot easier to walk in the flesh. Um, there, there, there's a big draw to the, the sins of immorality for the temporary in, enjoyment and, and fulfillment of, of lusts, right? Um, and so Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he didn't do. He walked the face of the earth lest we forget that when you don't give in to temptation when you haven't yielded to that then then you've been the strongest and then by almost by default you've been tempted the most because you didn't give in people who give in aren't tempted anymore now they failed right well he didn't give in to those desires of the flesh <clears throat> Even things that we might overlook, like just taking control of the kingdom, like right now. Remember, that's what Satan tempted him with. Take it. It's yours. And you think of that and you think, well, what if Jesus had just said, I'm going to establish my kingdom today? We're all dead. 
for eternity because he doesn't in subjection sacrifice himself and that, and that's what we want to absorb here and, and be in awe this idea of subjection we talked about it last week we talked about it last week when we looked at Ephesians 5:20 and, and then backing up to verse 15 it says look okay therefore be careful how you walk be careful how you walk not as unwise but as wise God wants us to be wise the opposite of wise is foolish doesn't want us to be foolish verse 16 you need to learn how to make the most of your time why well because the days are evil there's a lot of wickedness there's a lot of temptation throughout the day so then don't be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is and so the will of the Lord in verse 17 God just gives us a couple examples this is not an exhaustive list this is just a few things so, so don't be foolish. Understand the will of the Lord. Here's a couple things to consider. One, don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Verse 20, always give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And then last week we looked at and be subject to who? To each other, to others. Why? In the fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord. I don't want to be subject. I want to be in charge. I don't want to follow. I want to lead. Right? I, 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 I'm a leader. Well, verse 20 sets the, 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 the standard. Look, your subjection to others isn't for the other. It, it's, it's in the fear of, of Christ. Uh, we talked about last week the, the idea. Why didn't it say in the love of Christ? Because Jesus is love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love, you know, is not arrogant. Doesn't keep account of wrong. Why didn't it say love? Instead, it's like it's a warning. It 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 points out in the fear of Christ, be subject to one another. It's the difference between the carrot and the stick, right? There's some things that you know. We 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 want the reward. If you do this, you're gonna you're gonna get a cookie. You know, going to get a treat. There are other things that are harder, right? There are other things that are like harder to follow, obey. And it's like, uh, if I offer the treat, I don't think that's going to work. You know what? If you do this, I'm going to whoop you. Whoa, what? That gets your attention a little bit more, right? If you do this, I'm going to punish you. So, so we see those two different elements. Well, that's what we see here. Why? Because being subject to one another is hard. Who likes it? Who enjoys being subject to other people? Generally speaking, most people don't like it at all to anybody for any purpose, for any reason. I'm a sharsh. That's what one of our kids used to say. I'm a sharsh, right? I don't even know how to say it, but they're in charge. 
Um, well, if you fear Christ, if you fear the ramifications of not being subject to one another, maybe you should reconsider. See, we walk through the door not with our own mindset. We walk through the, through the door with a humble submission to God's word, to be transformed by what God's word says. I was working with Charlotte on, on writing papers and writing proposition papers. And, you know, we could ask, hey, you know, this is your opinion. It's opinion paper. Give me three reasons why you like ice cream. Fair enough. Whatever reasons, your reason, say whatever you want. But then when we look at the Bible, see, I don't get to just say, well, these are the three things that I like. These are the three. Here's my example. If I were to say walk as a wise person and not as a wise person, what would Tony's list be? I, I don't get to do that. That's why we go to God's word and, and we go one verse at a time. We exposit the verse and it, it's like, well, here's where we're at next. Of all the sins in the world, of all the struggles and, 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 and conflicts and, and battles that we have, it, it, it starts with, with the drunkenness, but it, then it ends here with subjection. So I don't make the list. I don't make the rules. We, we just come to it. And here we are, we're faced with this idea of subjection. And then, and we'll get it into it in more earnest and detail, well, here's a little example of how that looks, right? Here's a little example of when I'm talking about subjection, this is God, what this looks like. He goes to the marriage. He goes to the relationship of marriage as a practical example of what this looks like and a literal example of what Jesus did. And that's what we are very interested in is looking at Jesus then being the object of subjection, and we see it revealed here in Ephesians. Well, let's go back to Ephesians 1. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And we see in Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How? In Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, we're blessed. So we're blessed. Our blessing comes from Christ Jesus. We have an eternal blessing that comes from Christ Jesus. Verse 4, in, in Christ, we're chosen to be holy and set apart just as he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Why are we holy and blameless? Because Christ chose us. Because he blessed us with an eternal blessing. Verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons. How? Through Christ Jesus to himself. Why? According to the kind intention of his will. God is kind. God is so kind, he chooses and adopts us. Again, well, how does this work? Verse 7, in him we have redemption. We have 
the pardon, the forgiveness, the atonement for sin. How? Through his blood, not through our blood, not through an animal's blood, through his blood, the forgiveness of, of our trespasses, the forgiveness of our sin. See, the Bible's unequivocal. The Bible doesn't like sugarcoat it. Well, you, you made some mistakes. You did some things that weren't, you know, I didn't really like. No, but that's sin. Flat out. It's sin. It's a trespass. You trespassed the law. Um, we like to sugarcoat it. God just cuts it straight. That's okay. It's okay to be forward. By his blood we redeem. By his kind intention. We see in, in verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Remember the mystery was you had the Gentiles and the Jews? And they're separate, right? And only the Gentiles were picked. Only the Gentiles were chosen. We find out in Ephesians, hey, you're all one. You're, you're all part of the family of faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. No longer. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Our, we're sealed, right? It's that, that pressing, the seal. It's done. It's forever. How? With the Holy Spirit of promise. It's by Jesus that our salvation is sealed. It's sealed through him. It's sealed by him. Verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. All right. We're going to get now into understanding like real power, real strength, real might. Okay. What does it look like? Which he brought about in Christ. When? How? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And he gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, did you catch that? All things are in subjection to Christ. He is king. He is ruler. He is in authority. All things are in subjection to him. But, but did you catch verse 20? How did this come about when he raised him from the dead? Wait a minute. He was dead? He died? Yeah. Before his, his authority, his power, his greatness, came his death. His subjection came first. We, we can't miss that. He lays down his life 
for us, for the sinners, for the subjects. The king lays down his life for the subjects. He provides the pathway. His headship comes through his subjection, through his sacrifice, through his servanthood. We get a glimpse of even more of what this looks like in Ephesians chapter 5. Turning back to Ephesians 5, here's what this looks like. So we see a transition in this being subject to one another. And we're going to see this, this relationship between husband and wife. But first, and more importantly, we need to understand the relationship between Christ and the church. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. His headship is tied with being the savior. How did he save us? By dying. He didn't save us. When you think of being saved, you think of the king on the, on the white knight, right? On the horse, leading the charge with the sword in hand, slaying his enemies to victory. That's not how this king is head of the church. Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, because we are all in subjection to him, so also wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? By bestowing lavish gifts and rewards and wealth and, you know, prosperity? No. He gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church. How? By being subject, being in subjection to the church. How? By dying, by giving himself up for the church. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands all too also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, just as Christ also does the church. Christ's headship, Christ's leadership is, is, is cloaked in this idea of nourishing and cherishing and cleansing and, and presenting as holy and spotless, all done through sacrifice. Why? Verse 30, because we are members of his body. We're in a membership. We like that word membership, right? I'm a member of this. I'm a member of that. Okay, we, the membership of Christ. Well, the hallmark of that membership is sacrifice. It, it's sacrifice. Where's the male chauvinism in this passage? Show me the male chauvinist pig dominant. Do what I say. Do it now. Do it. How, where is that here? 
does that mean we haven't seen that displayed in humanity? We have. We would call that sin. We would call that wrong. We would call that not biblical. This is the biblical model. We follow Christ. Verse 31, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and the shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking. Again, you, you, you got to follow this track here, right? Ephesians is trying to get us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And as, and as we build on the examples, what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling? Why is it worthy? Because Christ died for our sins. So now we're called to walk obediently in Christ by living a real Christian life. How do we live a real Christian life? Well, here are some examples. Uh, don't do this, do that. And then, by the way, this is what marriage looks like. But, but really, it's more, let me explain verse 32 with reference to, to Christ. So if we weren't sure, it just spells it out. The mystery is great, but listen, I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. So yes, there's a practical application here for marriage, but the bigger picture here is helping us to understand the reference to Christ and the relationship to Christ in the church. And so, yes, we can draw the application in our marriages from this, but first we have to anchor ourselves in understanding what's really taking place here is this amazing example of how Christ is subject and in subjection because we hate that term. Let's be honest. We, we do not like that idea, and we'll talk about it more. You know, the most hated verse in in Christianity, Ephesians 5.22, wives, be subject. Oh, stop right there. That's not the point. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is Christ. The point of the passage is who is he? What has he done? The point is when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What is he saying to you, wifey? Even more importantly, what is he saying to you, hubby? But we're going to get into that later. And so we see this glimpse of, of what subjection looks like in, this, in a relationship of this kind of this, this working together. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she she respect her husband. The Lord loved the church and gave himself up for her. The membership is his body, not women's rights, not men. It's Christ. He's the membership. Turn with me to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. This is the king of the universe. This is God incarnate that we're talking about here. Jesus. We want to understand that Jesus is the object of subjection. We see how it unfolds a little bit here in Ephesians. But practically speaking, what, is it, what does it really look like? Matthew 26, just after communion, 
just before the crucifixion, verse 36, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. We see in Luke 22 that it was like drops of blood coming down from him. He was so deeply grieved. He says, remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little bit beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. The idea of falling on your face. We don't, we don't understand that. When do you see somebody fall on their face? Well, only in the movies. Who falls on their face? Subjects fall on their knees, lay out their hands, prostrate, eyes down, can't look up at the king. The subject falls before the king in subjection. It's the ultimate sign of humility. A warrior does not lay himself before his enemies like that, right? Why? There's no defense. There's no defense in that, in that position. Jesus then falls on his face and prays saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Why? He knows exactly what's about to take place in totality. He's read Isaiah. He's written Isaiah. He knows the suffering servant. Yet, not as I will, but as thou will, as thou will. Jesus is in complete subjection. Verse 40, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may enter into the temple. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus went away again, a second time and prayed saying, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for they were heavy and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time saying the same thing once more, being in subjection, being humble, being at the mercy of the father's bidding. Jesus is in subjection. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking rest? Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let's go. He has a job to do. Jesus is in subjection to do the master's bidding. The object of Christmas is Jesus. God with us, the incarnate Son of God, comes to save the world through sacrifice and subjection. Well, we see this again. Jesus, the object of subjection, revealed in Philippians. And like I said, there, we, we could go to so many different passages, so many different books, but it was just a couple glimpses, and one's Ephesians, and the other one's uh, Philippians. So in Philippians, where again we saw in Ephesians 1.22 that all things are in subjection to Christ, right? 
While he is head, he is also subject. Um, we know Ephesians 5.20, Ephesians 5.22, that Christ is head of the church. We see in the birth of Christ in Matthew 2.2 2, that, that the, uh, the, the, the magi, the kings, they come to what? To discover, to find out where is he? Where's who? Where is the king of the Jews? Where's the king of the Jews? They recognize him as the king. Um, they come to worship him. Well, what, what, what do we see in, in, a, in Philippians? In a Philippians 2, we see, well, I therefore, verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So the, Ephesian, the Philippians church is, is under some persecution. And as, as we get into verse 2 or chapter 2, uh, here's some encouragement. Here's a way to be encouraged. If you want joy, if you want complete joy, then you need to have the same mindset, the same mental framework, being intent on one purpose. What's that purpose? Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourself. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. He's the example. He sets the tone. So again, we see that Jesus is the object of subjection. We see it revealed in Philippians. Some of you know that, you know, we, we think you all should know that we have the, you know, the Ravensdale Bible Academy. And we, you know, what some of you may not know is our mascot. Our mascot is, is a ram, right? Rocky the ram. Um, well, why is it a ram? Why isn't it, you know, I mean, of all the, the different mascots you can have, why, why the ram? Uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you know, the football team, Hawaii, they were the, the rainbows. Rainbows. It's like, what? you know, we're the rainbows. It's like, that, that doesn't sound macho or masculine at all, right? Well, they changed it, actually, to rainbow warriors. Now it's cool. And they have different uniforms, different colors, and it looks cool. Well, mascots have meaning. Mascots, you know, there's a reason for them. And so... We chose the ram. Why? Because of the duality of the meaning. The ram is, is, is that big, buff sheep, right? <laughs> he's got the big horns. He's big. He's strong. He's powerful. He's mighty. He's a leader. So we, we like that. Okay, you know, the, the rams. But the ram is also the sacrifice. In Christianity, the ram is what sacrificed on the altar to pay the price for sin. And so in the ram, you have both servant and leader. The leader is a leader through his servant sacrifice. Well, that's what we see in Jesus. We see this in Jesus. We see that there's a, a purposeful 
way of life with intent. It begins with do absolutely nothing with selfishness. Say that out loud. Do nothing with selfishness. Nothing. Some things, a couple things, a little bit. Nothing. It's not Tony. The, the, this is God's word. You're, we're called to do nothing from selfishness. Or, so maybe externally, you, you, you don't do things that are selfish, but internally, you have conceit. You have arrogance. You brag. No, not that either. Or empty conceit. And I love the empty part. You think you're great. You're not. It's empty. Ouch. <laughs> right? God's like kicking you out. Look, don't, don't be selfish and stop walking around with this empty conceit. Your bag is empty. You think you're great about what? But instead, replace that with humility of mind. Change your mindset. Change your mental frame of thinking. How so? In what way? Well, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. So I'm not going to be so, I'm not going to think of myself. Think of that as the modern day message right now. The modern day message is completely opposite of that. Only think of yourself. Think of yourself first. You're the best, right? Empty conceit, the opposite. You don't need to regard others as more important than yourself. You are the most important. Your opinion's the only thing that matters. Do what you want to do. YOLO, you know, live once, you know, life's short, have fun. No. That, that is satanic thinking. If you're not sure, then you need to memorize this passage. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility in mind, regard others as more important than yourself. Do not merely look on your own personal interests. Don't do it. Stop doing it. Look at the interests of others. This then, verse 5, is the attitude of Jesus. This is how Jesus thinks. I want to think like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. Well, it begins by thinking and doing this. Well, what exactly did Jesus, what did Jesus do? Well, although he existed in the form of God, although he's part of the triune Godhead, incarnate deity, he didn't regard equality with God to be a thing to be grasped. But instead, again, great mystery. How, do, how is this possible? Verse 7, Jesus, the king of the universe, empties himself, is in subjection to his subjects, empties himself. How? By taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Not only does Jesus allow himself to be a man in the flesh. Remember, when you're God, that's a pretty lowly thing. But also as a bondservant, as a slave, he puts himself willingly in subjection 
to the subjects. Verse 8, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Remember Matthew 26? Is there another way, good father? Can, we, can, can this cut pass? There is no other way. This is the plan. Stick to the script. Okay, Jesus is obedient. He humbles himself to obedience even to the point of death. I would never write this story. Even to the point of death on a cross. The cross was designed to be a humiliating judgment. A humiliating event. When, when you rebelled against the, the authority of Rome, if you had the audacity to stand up against Rome, the audacity to, to break the law of Caesar, the God-man, self-proclaimed God-man, then we're going to show you. You think you're something? We're going to hang you on a post and let you die in agony so that everybody can see. So the whole town square can see you're nobody. You're nothing. We can throw you on a cross like a rag doll. Jesus puts himself into subjection, in obedience, even in death on a cross. In Tony's script, right at that point when Pontius Pilate is getting ready to, to you know, find him guilty, he's like, ha, ha, ha. And he laughs at him, grabs him by the throat, and, you know, kind of CGI's him around the place and walks out and, you know, rips open his shirt and the big S is on his chest for Savior, right? <laughs> and, you know, he starts wielding his sword. That's not what our Lord did. Our Lord, in this humble subjection, puts himself on the cross. Verse 9, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above all names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Everybody, heaven and earth and hell everywhere. Through sacrifice, Jesus gains power and authority and headship. Not the way we would script it, think it. Verse 11, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His Lordship. Remember, again, right here, Jesus the Christ. This is the Messiah. And we'll talk about this next week. The Messiah. The Messiah is the God King. The, the God King is the Lord. This is what he does. But I don't want to be in subject to my husband. I don't want to be subject to each other, which includes my wife. I don't follow anybody. I don't humble myself to anybody. I look for my personal interests above others. I don't regard others as more important than myself. I am the most important. My way or the highway. Sound familiar? Well, it's promoted and praised and maybe even sometimes by our own lips. 
maybe not out loud, but that's what we practically do. That's how we practically live. And that's where God is so beautiful and so amazing because he tells us to do things. And then he gives us these examples of how to do them or what he did, because it will look different in each and every one of us. We will have different opportunities to sacrificially serve. And when your number gets called, will you think, well, um, what happens to me? I'm the most important piece of this puzzle. So no, I can't do that. Well, it takes a different mindset. It takes a Christian mindset. These are not suggestions. So when we look at Christmas and we see Jesus putting himself in the manger as a baby, oh, that's cute and sweet. God incarnate is putting himself in subjection to his subjects so that he can die to save us from our sin and serve us. Your turn. My turn. How do we take up our daily crosses? Well, Ephesians 5, for starts, most of you are probably going to get married and be married. So let's see you do it practically every day in your marriage. That's how that fleshes out in Ephesians 5. But even before that, because maybe you're not married or maybe you're not married yet, or maybe it's something else. You know what? Let's just cover the whole, be subject to one another. So you can't follow Ephesians 5.20. It's going to be really hard to follow after that. Because the foundation and the premise of that is we're to be like Christ. Our humble mindset, our attitude is to think of others as more important than yourself. So when you think of something like, well, be subject to others. Yeah, okay. of course. Isn't that what Christianity is? See, I died to the old self. The old guy was arrogant. The old guy was conceited. The old guy regarded himself as more important than himself. The old person would never be subject to anybody. The other person put themselves ahead. The new creature in Christ, the born again believer, walks in a manner worthy of the calling. How? by being subject to one another. The king is confident in his leadership to yield in subjection. And the subjects are confident in the king's plan to follow the plan. Your subjection is as unto the Lord, not the person. You're, you're not being subject to the person. You're being subject to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who set the tone. He set the example. And so that's the blueprint. That's the blueprint. That's the example. And next week, we'll, we'll look at this plan of subjection. It was not a mistake. 
It didn't just fall into it. This was a well-designed, well-conceived plan by the Lord God Almighty himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for...